Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth, remembering great ones is easy to do. What about the names who spent their whole lives? Walks down the footballs and catching sacrifice. They're guys, remember that guy. some guys now and here it is Tua Tagovailoa a true freshman from Hawaii gets the second half start he keeps it he's a nifty runner not quite as powerful as Hertz he's in there because he remembers that guy I'm sure we mind our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks I'm James one of your hosts let's meet the guy that I will get benched for at halftime getting benched but it doesn't matter we're one big happy team led by Satan Nick Saban Diaz back with you once again, and we have a very special guest. There was actually a third quarterback on that team, and I would love for him to introduce himself. You know what? I don't remember the third string quarterback on that team, so instead, I'm actually Tua's jujitsu coach, the one who's teaching him how to fall right so he doesn't get concussions anymore. The very special guest, Xavier. I guess Mac Jones was the next year that he came in, right? It, it is crazy. Yeah, it was Mac Jones. Look at that. It's Jalen Hurts, Tua, and Mac Jones. It is crazy that you chose that for the intro, James, because literally last night I was at a brewery with Dr. Medicinal and we were talking about that exact game and how Nick Saban didn't make a deal with the devil. He is literally the devil himself to bench his undefeated quarterback for his true freshman. And it turns out to be the 100% correct right decision and it wins them the game. And then he does the opposite and it also works. Wait, okay. I need you both to know this. There was a much lower string quarterback on that team whose name was Montana Murphy. And I need you to guess what he currently does now as a job. Car salesman. Quarterback coach for the Montana Grizzlies. He is now an associate wealth advisor for investment and financial planning. Which I think That's is not the, what I would have expected, but I do love that there's definitely a billboard in the world that exists with his name like that. He enjoys spending time with family and friends, staying active, and golfing. Montana uh, well, Murphy is a total eight handicap that drives it 300 <laughs> yards and has a terrible short game. Speaking of the short game, in terms of short-term memories, Xavier, I wonder what it is that might be making memories for you right now. All right, so I got a couple things. So I'm going to start with the first one, which I'm going to keep short for your sake, James. The New York Liberty did beat the Las Vegas Aces again and held them to, again, another terrible scoring performance, this time in Vegas, to win the WNBA Commissioner's Cup. Oh, yeah. Which no, season's over. The trophy, unquote trophy, that the Liberty ever won. They are playing again in a couple hours as we record this because mm-hmm. they just happen to have two games and in the same week in Vegas. But Liberty looking good. Aces if, if, still looking good against everyone other than the Liberty. So we're yeah, going to get that final. If we but, don't get that final, it'd be the biggest upset of like anything I can remember. I'm ready to call it, man. They have not won a game that matters yet because they've not won the last two games against the Liberty. And that's all good. They won a championship of the Commissioner's Cup last year. I couldn't possibly be more content with the Las Vegas Aces. Uh, season's over, though. It's absolutely over. That's it. I am nothing if not a fatalist. All right, we'll get back to your fatalism later. <laughs> uh, but there are some well, other... Oh, well, hold on. You can't be fatalistic about 
the 21 and 0 Baltimore Ravens preseason consecutive winning streak. It's 21 it's now, it's right? Like 26. Oh my god. I'm going to let you guys know something. We're tired of it here in Baltimore. We are truly tired of it at this point. It is it's good. We we said it. It's going to stand for a very long time. Like I don't want it to make any more memories for me. I want to hear more about Xavier's memories. <laughs> And correction it is 24. So we were both wrong, but it was in the middle. So that's fine. But all right, two soccer things. First, I want to go a little more obscure before I do, you know, our regular roundup. So there is a team named Klaxviskar Itradaflag, which is also known as KI, which is a Faroese soccer team, aka from the Faroe Islands. If you know anything about the Faroe Islands, you know that it is a very small constituent country and there are not a lot of people there they are more known for literal whaling than anything else so this team that i'll abbreviate is ki because that is how they abbreviate it before this year the best they had ever done in european competition was losing in the playoff round of a europa league uh, qualification to dundalk of ireland uh, back in 2020 in champions league qualifying because for those who don't know the Champions League starts in like June with all of the small teams from like Andorra and the Faroe Islands and everyone else playing each other in qualifiers before they get to the actual group stage where all of the big teams for the most part jump in. So the best they had ever done in like in qualifying, starting the first round every time, they had been two and six previously. One of their wins was a COVID forfeit against the Slovakian team in 2020. So their first actual win in again the first round of qualifying was a win over a Norwegian team Bodo last year but they then lost that two-legged tie and didn't advance this year in the first round they beat the Hungarian champions Ferrik Varos 3-0 on aggregate then they beat Hacken of Sweden 3-3 advancing on penalties meaning they had gone from never making it out of the first round to making it to the third round where they were facing Molda of uh, Norway, which is a perennial Scandinavian power. They make the Champions League, or at least the Europa League, pretty much every year. They beat Molda 2-1 in the first leg, but they did lose an extra time with the second leg on Tuesday, falling 3-2. But it's not over for them yet. Because they made it to the third round of Champions League qualifying, that means they fall down into the final playoff round for the Europa League where they are probably going to face Sheriff Tiraspol of Moldova for a spot in the Europa League group stage. But even if they lose that, they are guaranteed a spot in the Conference League group stage. So no matter what, KI of the Faroe Islands are going to play a European group stage for the first time in their history. And they'll get to host one, too. Like, they will yes, have yes, one game, yes. at least, of that in their own oh, They'll have three. Well, the group oh, yeah. Stage, the group stage is, is, is six, so they'll have uh, three games hosted there. Will this, like, overwhelm the hospitality infrastructure of their land? It's certainly possible. Klotzvik has 5,000 people. And as you may expect, their ground is pretty much in between some mountains and a bunch of water. So they're not going to be able to fit a lot of people there, but I bet there will be people who go just to experience it. And I bet they're going to have a great time. Maybe we can take a trip to the Faroe Islands, see what happens up there. But 
you know, I'll be keeping my eye on KI either in the Europa League or the Europa Conference League. And if anyone has Paramount Plus, you can watch those games. And you should at least watch one of their home games, regardless of what competition they're in, just to see how wild it is. I mean, I can't help but think, you know, from my perspective as a broadcast producer, that place has to be a logistical nightmare. Oh, definitely. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not even sure if the Faroe Islands have like an international airport. Do they have Wi Fi? This is a genuine question. I'm happy to be stupid, but I'm genuinely curious. I mean, they definitely have Wi-Fi because someone was tweeting out, like, their progress during games. Yeah, I don't think they have an international airport. There is one small airport a couple islands away, so you're going to have to take at least a couple ferries to get there. But you could do it. But one place you don't have to take ferries to is Australia, where the Women's World Cup is coming down to the wire. I will say, one of my two picks did make the finals, and that is Spain. And there's one specific player on Spain I want to talk about, and that's Salma Parayelo. Salma is 19 years old, and before this year had been a dual soccer player and international track athlete. In 2019, at the European Youth Olympics, she won two gold medals in the 400-meter hurdles and the medley relay. She was the second youngest athlete to ever compete at the European Indoor Championships when she was 15. She holds a ton of Spanish records at the 400 meters, the 400 meter hurdles. And she was seriously considering going professional as, you know, in track and field and competing at the Olympic level. But she was also a really good soccer player. She won the 2018 UEFA Women's Under-17 Championship, the 2018 Under-17 World Cup, the 2020 Under-20 World Cup, where she scored two goals in the final as Spain beat Japan 3-1, and made her senior debut for Spain last year in November, where she scored a hat trick in her first game against Argentina. You know, she, she's still young, still only 19, so she's been coming off the bench for the most part. And in the quarterfinals against Netherlands, she scores the winner in extra time. Uh, then just a couple days ago, she scores again in the semis against Sweden, as Spain wins that game 2-1. And there's a very good chance that she will have won the Under-17 World Cup, Under-20 World Cup, World Cup, and then multiple track gold medals by the time she is 19 years old. At 19, I think I was struggling to a B-minus in media analysis, I think is what I was doing. Well, 19 was uh, when you were in the Liberty. Uh, what was the name of that? Uh, the Liberty uh, The Revolutionaries. Liberty, Ball- yeah. Liberty, Ball- Liberty Ballers is the Sixers blog for SB right, Nation, right, right, right. which continues to do really good work. But at the time was Michael Levin was the editor. That was peak Liberty Ballers. But yes, the Revolutionaries. So yeah, I was, uh, I was in my full uh, Sixers maniac era. And it's crazy to think that that was actually the best at times have been as a Sixers fan, in a long time. Well, Diaz, if the Sixers aren't making positive memories for you, what is making memories for you? Well, no, I, I need to go about the Sixers right now. <laughs> yeah, no, you do, you do. <laughs> this is just the silliest organization in the history of professional sports. How do they keep doing it? How does it's, it keep being sillier? If you would have told me when... Burner gate happened with Brian Colangelo and the, the burner accounts and saying Joel Embiid is fat, pretending to be a gay parking lot attendant. Mm-hmm. All of those things are true things that, about those accounts. Very normal callers. If you would have told me 
when that happens that it might not even be a top three most frustrating thing to happen with the Sixers. And it's maybe not even a top five. Like, I wouldn't have believed you. Is it before or after Markel Fultz forgot how to play basketball? I genuinely forget. Burnergate happened after. That was like a full year after. But like, that so you've was seen like, one of your number one overall picks turn to dust in front of you. The most frustrating thing about that was like, I watched him play in summer league, and he was like, was very much Markel Fultz, and he was doing Markel Fultz things, and then he showed up for preseason, and Markel Fultz was no longer Markel Fultz. So we have that, you know, we have the Ben Simmons thing. But now what we have is a player who had an option, if he didn't want to be a sixer anymore, to become a free agent. And instead, he opted into his $36 million contract and immediately said, you need to trade me. What really the pinnacle is this video that was released on Monday morning. This is a hell of a thing to wake up to on a Monday morning. Like, I wake up roll over in bed, check my phone, and I see that James Harden has said in no unequivocal terms, Daryl Morey is a liar and I will not be a part of any organization that he is in. Let me say that again. <laughs> he reiterates to, first of all, I got to say, like as, as good of a panderer as Bryce Harper is to Philadelphia fans, James Harden going to China to shit on Daryl Morey is like just the most free, like, positive reinforcement that you could ever ask to receive like saying that in that environment is like, like the bryce harper wearing phillies fanatics cleats equivalent of pandering he had some line where he was saying like oh man maybe i should just come play here for a season would love to see that james harden please i mean you see some of the money being thrown around in some of these leagues like the chinese soccer league for a while was throwing around crazy contracts to get people who's to say you know, he doesn't sit out this year and like, you know, he has a stalemate. And then the CBA says, James, how would you like $100 million for one year of your time? Wait, wait, we, he needs a Neymar contract. H- have you seen Neymar's contract with the Saudi League? It's $100 million a year. He gets a 25-bedroom mansion with three saunas, five full-time house staff, a private plane on call 24-7. Wherever he goes... He's allowed to expense all hotel and travel expenses to his club. He gets 400000 per social media post about promoting Saudi Arabia. And he gets eight cars, including a Lamborghini, a BMW, and like a, a Bentley, I think. You know how, like, on Instagram, you can do that thing where you make nine separate posts and then they add up together to form, like, a larger picture? Yes. If he did that, does he get 400000 for each of those posts? Because I would does just he do get nothing with that. Million? You know what? With all they're giving him, I think they just see the number of posts. Like, here you go. Real quick, Diaz. I mean, you know the obvious team for James Harden, right? Long Dong Tigers. No, it would be perfect. You know, he would be at home. And I mean, truly, from just a pure absurdity of output perspective like this is a league where Dwight Howard has put up an 80 point triple double James Harden could potentially score 200 points in a game it's very possible so I mean I would love to see that I would love to see James Harden do that I would love most of all though 
if he would just have some logical consistency in the fact that he had the option to not be a sixer. He chose to be a sixer for a very fair and let's be real. He opted in because it is above what the market value is. He, nobody was willing to give him more money than the 36. That's why he took it. His ego's hurt. And the best thing that I can say for James Harden is that he's only the third most infuriating sixer, I would say, of my lifetime. I would say Ben Simmons and Andrew Bynum was doomed from the beginning. It is clear in hindsight. But, dude, going bowling to fucking re-aggravate the injury. Like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> and that's crazy because that was like a decade ago. And at that point, I would have thought, okay, surely this is the most silly thing that this organization can do. But the sectors continue to be even sillier and sillier. I feel very silly for having them permanently inked onto my body. It is a curse that I am forever irreparably twined with this franchise that is so silly and will continue to do nothing but hurt me. But hey, did you guys see the schedule came out for the in-season tournament? I think the Sixers got a pretty good chance coming out of that group. <laughs> I'm, I'm back in already. Fuck you and I'll see you tomorrow. It, exactly. If the Knicks win that tournament, I'm going to pretend that it's been around for 100 years and say that is the greatest accomplishment of my lifetime. World Baseball Classic, everything starts out as a silly tournament initially. But I wish I could provide a little bit more fun after that. Fortunately, I've got a big old bummer too. Just this week, I found out we would have to return to the world of chess. Uh, and unfortunately, this is not a fun eating scandal. Uh, this is just chess, which is already a sport that like, has always had a, a very big gender problem. Uh, a lot of people who would talk about superiority of one of the two genders would point to the fact that there has only ever been one woman to reach the top 10 ranking, uh, Judith Bolgar. But her and her sister are kind of part of the proof that like the fact that chess is gendered in the first place for men's and women's competitions is a little absurd. Their dad basically decided he was going to just raise them focus in on this one thing to kind of prove that he believed the larger reason that there was underperformance with girls of chess was like this vicious cycle of, well, there's low participation. And so a lot of stereotypes about their lesser skills pop up and that, that affects the mentality and the approach to the game. He was quoted as saying geniuses are made, not born. And now he does have a daughter who's at one point top 10 ranked in the world. And his other daughter, Susan, was the first ever female coach to win an NCAA tournament. So there's that. There's a 2007 study that showed when female players are told that their opponent is male, they play a much more defensive style that tends to lose about two out of every five times versus when they play someone they're told as a female player, they play much more aggressively regardless of their gender, and they play at about a 50-50 rate. So all in all, whole completely constructed gender dichotomy is bullshit. While the obvious answer would seem to be more welcoming, what they have decided instead, the International Chess Federation, is not only are we going to continue to keep these separated, we're also now, FIDE, going to ban all trans women from participating in any kind of women's chess tournaments. I don't have any numbers about what the amount of participation for that was. Can't imagine it was very high, but now no trans men or women are able to participate in the gendered competitions of their choosing uh, unless they submit to like a, a specific dispensation review that lasts approximately two years. And like, it's fucking chess. 
It's a board game. And it is specifically, you cannot do it if you transition following puberty. Because it's so goddamn easy in the world to, like, medically transition before puberty right now. So, obviously, you had that opportunity. What would they even review? Well, basically, they just review your case. They're like, it's like a psychoanalysis of whether or not they think you're actually trans. All they do is they just, they put out a Hot Wheels and a Barbie. And whichever one you go to, that confirms. Yeah, that's that's the the chess you're allowed to play. It's just fucking psychotic. And it's a month after, you know, cycling was riding that high of an excellent Tour de France. And then last month, uh, UCI, the cycling governing body, enacted a similar ban, which is going to be based on testosterone levels to, again, try and weed out anyone that transitioned after puberty. And as we've seen with Castro Semenya in the track world, nothing ever goes wrong with just testing the testosterone levels of female athletes. And even the compromises are just kind of fucking shitty. Like this came out this week too, and it's slightly more positive. World Aquatics is trying to find a compromise. And in this year's October Berlin World Cup, they're going to have an open category, which will have 50 meter and 100 meter lengths contested of all of the strokes. Anyone can participate in it. But like no one who's allowed to participate in the other two is presumably going to. And also, I mean, the most famous trans swimmer, Leah Thomas, for example, does not swim 50 or 100 meters that her distance is like 200 plus and so this national champion can't really compete in this it just continues to be really shitty for trans athletes man despite the fact that there are maybe hundreds maybe there are hundreds of trans athletes in the world and thousands more people have just decided to shit on them as a hobby? A political tactic? I don't fucking know. It sucks either way, and so I'm sorry to have brought this up, but it bothered me, and I wanted to share it. Boo. It makes me be happy about the fact that esports is surprisingly good about this. I wouldn't really even expect that, but one of like the best Smash Bros. Melee gamers, a girl named Magi. Oh, dude, and so much of the Smash trans. community is trans. So much of the Smash community is trans. And Magi rules. She's very, very good. And no one, as far as I know, has been trying to get her banned. I mean, maybe someone has, but not that I know about. Everyone seems to be very chill about it. But yeah, boo boo chess. Play Smash Bros. Melee instead. Easiest endorsement I think we've ever had to make. Speaking of endorsements, you know, sometimes a guy like Jalen Hurts will have gotten the endorsement of the coach. They'll have all of the confidence in the world feeling that the organization they're playing for has that confidence behind them. But the thing about sports is that organizations are not to be trusted. They are looking to replace you the moment it becomes convenient for them as they did with poor Jalen Hurts in there. Until, of course, again, they did later replace Tua with Jalen Hurts in a different championship game. So it all balances out in the end. Today's topic that I have brought, it's one of those instances where I had a specific person I wanted to talk about and I tried to think carefully about what the lens was. But Xavier, this came to me during your presentation last week because you made a certain assertion and it was one that respectfully I disagreed with in the moment. And I kind of kept having that rattle around in my head. And I decided when I got the opportunity to, to name the category that this is how I wanted to approach it. And so I'm going to use replaceable to talk about a very good name. We love good names on the show, whether it's of an athlete of a team, or in the case this time, a town, Walla Walla, Washington. 
Okay. Walla Walla, Washington. It's a great town name, right? Yes. Yes. It, it is a very great town name. It is a town that was founded in Washington State, basically due to a series of failed missionary attempts on the West Coast of America. And not a lot has come from Walla Walla. There are a couple notable names. There was a pro football player named Dean Derby, who played for the Steelers and the Vikings back in the 60s, right before either of those teams was any good. And TV's Adam West, formerly Batman, RIP. But finally, perhaps the greatest of the Walla Wallans to ever Walla Walla. And this is my guy today, Drew Bledsoe. Yep. Yep. I believe Drew Bledsoe is a guy, and I'm going to make that case to you. And to be clear, for a moment with Drew Bledsoe, when his parents, Mac and Barbara, have him, they are in Ellensburg, Washington. They don't start in Walla Walla because they're teachers. And so they're moving around a lot very early, but they are going to settle down in Walla Walla. Walla Walla is the womb in which Drew Bledsoe is going to kind of marinate and become the guy that he is destined to be. When they get there, it's the sixth grade, and this is when he starts to like kind of athletically blossom. Here in middle school is when he first goes on to start playing football. All of seventh grade, though, he's not playing quarterback. He's playing like every other position, but no quarterback at all. This changes in eighth grade because the next year he's going to go into high school and he's a pretty good football player. So he knows he's going to be playing for the high school football coach in Walla Walla, which is his dad, Mac Bledsoe. He's got the idea that he's probably going to have a good chance to be quarterback. He picks it up at this point and he gets to high school. He is phenomenal. Letters in basketball and track in addition to football. In track, he specializes in the discus and the javelin. So you know he's got an arm, but to further illustrate that, he sets a school record of 4,060 career passing yards, which is going to stand until October of 2016. And so a bunch of schools are taking note of this. He's going to get big old offers from Stanford, from Washington, all the way over on the other side of the country in Miami, but maybe influenced by a former player, former assistant coach for the school that he does end up going to, his father, Mac Bledsoe. He does choose to stay near home, and he goes to Wazoo, Washington State, as Xavier told us last week. Walla Walla to Wazoo. Walla Walla to Wazoo. God, that sounds like a uh, Abbott and Costello, Ryan the Rails musical. This is a little bit less exciting than that when we arrive at Washington State University in 1990, but it is still pretty exciting because the first year, like it is all set up for senior Brad Gosson and uh, second year guy, Aaron Garcia to basically split all of the passing. They had thrown all but six of the pass attempts the season before for the team and both were fully healthy coming in, but very quickly Drew Bledsoe, he shows right now he is not replaceable. He is the replacement. He is the one that knocks. And by the end of the season, he ends up leading the trio with 189 of the team's passing attempts in seven games that he plays. So he rests away this starting job, and he is the first ever true freshman in school history to do so. Still only one of three to date. Sophomore year, a little better. He's the unquestioned starter coming into this. Gets his completion percentage over 55 because he's always a big volume guy. Accuracy will continue to be an item that we deal with with Drew Bledsoe. Uh, well, but the three and eight Cougars I, do go all the way up to four and seven. Well, I also just think it's important context. Like completion percentages today are like so overinflated as compared to the way yes. that it was back then. So like over 50 was like genuinely good back then. Exactly. Yeah. Like he had uh, been about 48 that freshman year. So just to see it get across that, that barrier with the volume he's putting up is excellent. And so they're now the four and seven Washington state Cougars, which does make them out of 107 D one schools, number 69. Very nice. The next year he's got a similar completion percentage, but the volume just keeps going up and up and up this year. He throws the ball 432 times in 12 games 
cracks 3,000 yards for the first time, 3,246 specifically, and that is helped by the 12th game, which is the first ever bowl game that he plays in, the Copper Bowl over Utah. It is a 31-28 to 28 win with uh, Bledsoe at the age of 20, throwing for 476 of the team's 492 passing yards. Who had the other 16? Yeah. <laughs> it was like a, a trick play from one of the wide receivers. They were showing off at that point. He is the Pac-10 Offensive Player of the Year, and he is not coming back for his senior year. He decides he's going to head into the 1993 NFL Draft because it's a pretty shallow QB class. It is pretty much him and Rick Meyer. Rick Meyer is from Notre Dame. He's got lesser stats, but he's got the pedigree of the school. He's got some records at the school. That combined with his height, which is very, very similar to Joe Montana, also a Notre Dame guy with pretty much the exact same stats, has talked some people into this being the next coming of Joe Montana. So it is a debate between which of these two that you take. And there are two very QB-hungry teams at the top. It took the NFL so long to catch up to the fact that you shouldn't just automatically draft the Notre Dame quarterback in the first round. I think it was finally Brady Quinn was the one where it was like, okay, let's draw a line in the sand here. Now, I don't know about you guys. If I was in this position, I would almost prefer to be in the number two spot the way that Seattle is. Because, like, look, you're going to be happy with either of these two outcomes. The other team has to worry about making the decision, and then you just take whoever falls into your lap. We're more concerned with the team at the number one pick, and I want to take you guys back to picture a beautiful world in which the New England Patriots suck shit. It's been so long. We are returning to that world slowly. We're getting there, but we're never going to quite get back there because to put this in perspective, from their inception in 1960 until the 2-14 season that they had had just the year before to get that number one overall pick, they were all-time 216 and 259, 43 games below 500. They finished first three times compared to eight in last place. They had made six playoff appearances, four of which were one and dones meaning that because of one failed Super Bowl run where they fell to the Bears, they were 4-6 and all-time in postseason. One of those wins was not from that Super Bowl run. Now, they had reason to believe the brighter days were on the horizon. That offseason, after nearly coming out of retirement twice already, finally the third time is the charm for a team to get Bill Parcells, former New York Giants legend, two-time Super Bowl winner, to come out of retirement. He is going to come and coach these Patriots now. And he gets a chance to take a franchise quarterback with his first overall pick. So with the first overall pick, the Patriots select Drew Bledsoe. This is supposed to begin a new era of Patriots football. First year, Bledsoe's a rookie. He's handed the reins. And like his sophomore year with the Cougars, now that he's the unquestioned starter versus the year before, they do improve. They go from 2-14 and 14 to 5-11. and 11, So better. And just airing it out to the same extent in the pro leagues that he did in college leagues. So by year two... He is starting to really get comfortable with that. Pats go 10 and 6, make the playoffs for the first time since 1986, which, by the way, I did not realize until reading this that there is like a devastating Patriots playoff loss in 1986 when they then don't make the playoffs again for a while. Just months later, they have the Bill Buckner World Series collapse. Once again, God, this beautiful moment in Boston history that all of us can enjoy. Well, it was also the 85 Bears spanked the shit out of the Patriots in that Super Bowl right before then, too. Yeah, yeah. A beautiful moment that uh, Drew Bledsoe's trying to turn around. He's doing his very best to make it better. By 1996, they're going to make it now to a franchise record 11 wins. Dominant run through the AFC. They're going to win a combined 48-9. to nine. So Bledsoe is doing his very best, but the defense is a big part. 
because they now have Bill Belichick as their defensive coordinator. Bill Belichick, who would actually, as the Cleveland head coach, gotten his only win against these same Patriots led by Drew Bledsoe just a couple years ago. But here in Super Bowl 31, Favre and the Packers, they finally solved the D. It is a 35 to 21 romp. And like Green Bay coach Mike Holmgren only got this job because Parcells had to turn it down at one point, one of those two times that he did not come out of retirement because he had open heart surgery. Funny how these little cardiac events have such uh, seismic ripples on the Super Bowl landscape. Put a pin in that. Anyway, Bledsoe is named a Pro Bowl starter this year. He doesn't compete, but it is his first time as a Pro Bowl starter after having been named an alternate previously when he made the playoffs. And so this full body of work shows, you know, this is the best quarterback in Patriots history to this point. It is the end of the Parcells era. He had been clashing with their new owner, Robert Kraft, we're all familiar with. And if Parcells and Belichick leave, Bledsoe and the Pats enter now the Pete Carroll era. It starts pretty bad. They're five and four through nine games, but Bledsoe ends up having them win five of their last seven, sets a career high of 87.7 for his QB rating. This earns him a third Pro Bowl spot, and the 10 and six record gets New England another playoff spot. An unprecedented run of success for this franchise. They beat their division rival Miami, but then do eventually lose to Pittsburgh in a six to seven rock fight. That's how the AFC North does playoff football, baby. 1998, again, I'm kind of rushing through the New England thing, so we need to get to the important part, which is the replacing. But we need to set up what they were replacing. Again, they start out flat, 5-5. Five and five. Week 11, they're trailing Miami 23-19 in the fourth quarter. If they lose this divisional game, like the playoffs are going to be almost impossible to reach. But a 25-yard score to Sean Jefferson from Bledsoe with 34 seconds left. Eventually, he is the winning score in a 26-3 win. And the next week, Again, trail a division foe, Buffalo, 21-17. But as time expires, he uncorks another goal line pass, this time to Ben Coates, first ever quarterback to lead comebacks that late in a game in consecutive weeks. Drew Bledsoe, ladies and gentlemen. He is doing all of this, by the way, with a broken finger, which will unfortunately cause him to miss the last two games. And so they finish 9-7. and seven. It's only good for fourth in the division. It does get them another playoff spot, which is their third straight. And they're fourth in eight years after six in the previous 33 years. But he is not able to compete. They lose once again. The Carroll era fizzles out. They start bad and third time, they finally finish bad. They now go to the Jets. And once upon a time, they had gotten a bunch of draft compensation from the Jets for Parcells and Belichick going there. They now do the reverse and send a bunch of draft compensation to the New York Jets in exchange for Bill Belichick who comes over and starts this new regime in New England, once again carrying through this greatest quarterback in franchise history, Drew Bledsoe. Not a great first year, the 5-11, but he's solid. He throws for 3,291 yards, once again, in huge amounts of volume, 531 attempts. 17 touchdowns and 13 interceptions is a career low in interceptions, and he is a free agent following this. So New England decides, look, we have got this guy in the prime of his life, all-time great for this franchise. So we're going to sign him to a 10-year, $103 million contract for this franchise, an unprecedented commitment to their offensive signal caller. But you know what? Let's enter this next year. Let's see with a little bit more continuity with Belichick, this dominant defense. Let's see if this player can go ahead and manage it. Ooh, we're 0-1-1 after losing the Bengals. That's okay. We're going to host the Jets next week. We're going to bounce back. Bledsoe takes an admittedly totally clean hit from Mo Lewis and Sean Ellis 
pretty much at the exact same time, goes to the ground and seemingly suffers a concussion. So he is forced to the sideline. He is not able to play for the rest of this game. Trainers eventually think it might be a little bit worse because as it goes on, his heart is still racing. And typically with a concussion, you would see a huge drop in the heart rate. They decide to take him to the doctor, get some additional checks. It turns out that he had something called a hemothorax. Basically sheared a blood vessel in his heart. And he had just been internally bleeding at the rate of about one pint per hour the entire time since that. So had they not gone and investigated this cardiac event, likely would have died there on the sideline. So thankfully he's there. And thankfully, I mean, the Patriots, they handle a bit. They take care of business. In the meantime, they've got this backup QB, Tom Brady, who comes in. He is an efficient game manager at this point compared to the kind of high volume gunslinger, but this efficient game manager works as Bledsoe <laughs> continues to be held out for medical reasons. They go 11-3. They win the division. The tuck rule game happens. Brady actually has to come out of the AFC championship game. And for the first time in a long time, Drew Bledsoe gets some meaningful minutes against the Steelers here, leading the Patriots to a 24-17 win. Unfortunately, Brady is back under the center. Team makes it to the Super Bowl. They do win that. Bledsoe gets a ring, but he never again gets a snap as a Patriot. After one year of his 10-year, $103 million quarterback, Belichick says, thanks, actually, I've got a new one. The one thing that I want to say for Drew Bledsoe's contributions to specifically that Super Bowl is I remember watching when NFL Network, remember they did like a series of documentaries on just like each Super Bowl winning team? Yeah, yeah, like leading up to 50, I think. Right. The 01 Patriots, like when they got that ball tied at 17, John Madden was saying on the broadcast, like, just take it to overtime. And that was what Belichick wanted to do on the sideline. And it was actually Bledsoe that stepped in and said, if I give a direct quote, fuck that, go out there and sling it. Which I think based on everything that we know about gunslinger Drew Bledsoe at this point, absolutely makes sense. So what do you do now if you are New England with a franchise quarterback who no longer has a franchise to call his own? Well, I guess you send him to a divisional rival because they ship him out to the Buffalo Bills. And coming in, we got a lot of quotes from USA Today. People are fucking stoked about this. GM Tom Donahue. Our feeling is that we've acquired not just a star quarterback in the NFL, but one who we feel is one of the top three or four quarterbacks in the league. Owner Ralph Wilson. I've been around this team for many years, and this trade is one of the most exciting we've ever made, maybe the most exciting. Bills are hyped. Bills are absolutely in the throes of Drew Bledsoe mania. Oh, how quickly things change because injuries absolutely decimate the team in 2003. In 2004, they end up starting to switch to a rush game that is largely based around Ravens legend Willis McGahee. And so Bledsoe's stats just crater because there's no longer really a passing offense. So while they have a late season push, it's ruined by them laying an egg in the finale versus Pittsburgh and they miss the playoffs. So now that the Bills had switched to this more rushing offense, they look at their room. In the draft, Previously, they had taken Ravens legend Lee Evans, Hall of Guy inductee in the first round, but they actually later in the first round after seeing like Philip Rivers, Eli Manning, not Hall of Famer Ben Roethlisberger all come off the board. They decided to get in the action too. They trade back into the first round and they take a quarterback. Do either of you know this quarterback's name? Uh, J.P. Lossman. J.P. Lossman is correct. Yes. Latino legend <laughs> J.P. Lossman. Latino and Bills legend, head coach Mike Malarkey, 
who I think we can all agree is very good at managing quarterbacks. Besides, it's JP Lossman time. We've had enough of this Bledsoe fella. Three years is three years too many. Here's a direct quote from him this offseason, also from USA Today. We felt the ideal situation football team was to have him as a backup and work with JP. Everything he's seen would be a real benefit to a young quarterback. Drew did not feel that way. So Drew Bledsoe is cut. Drew Bledsoe enters the free agent market along with Freddie Garcia and post-Giants Kurt Warner. This is a robust quarterback market, let's say, and there is a perfect landing spot. Coach Bill Parcells is back in business. He is down there with the Cowboys, and they are ready to accept Drew with open arms. Slight pay cut from his mega contract with the Patriots. It is now a three-year, $23 million one, but still a pretty sizable commitment for your starting quarterback. And they're looking forward to it. You know, Drew himself says, Bill wants me here and being the starter. I anticipate that being the case and not for one year. And at first, change of scenery seems to have done the trick. Is his ninth 3,000-yard season at the time that ties Warren Moon for fourth all time. Dallas is in contention till the final game of the season. That is in no small part due to five game-winning drives in the fourth quarter or later. Big improvement over 6-10. and 10. They do miss the playoffs. But that's fine. Drew Bledsoe, great first year in Dallas. And he does start the next year as the starting quarterback for the Cowboys. However, while he is not the starter for just one year, he is not the starter for two full years. Six games in, he is throwing fewer than 200 yards per game. He's got seven touchdowns to eight interceptions. And he is benched. Week eight for backup Tony Romo. Cowboys finish six and four with Romo. Nine and seven makes the playoffs for them that year. And they do lose to Seattle, but once again, for Drew Bledsoe, a third time, they decide we are going to take this young gun, and he is out of the league. I do want to say, while he started, I think, two more games after this, the Eagles, in no small part, sent Drew Bledsoe out because I think it was week five or week six. This was the Terrell Owens return game, too. So this was like a massive fucking game. Came down 31-24. We're trying to hold on. And what does Drew Bledsoe do with the game on the line? He throws a 102-yard pick six to Lito Shepard. Until the Eagles won the Super Bowl, that was probably my favorite Eagles game of all time. I'm sure you enjoyed it. Look, I know that you're not necessarily going to be sympathetic to Drew Bledsoe here. But let's take a moment to think about Drew Bledsoe here. Because... It's clear now he's not going to keep getting a chance as a starter. And as he has made clear multiple times, he does not want to be a backup. So he does formally retire at this point, April 11th, 2007, after 14 years, three franchises, three different young quarterbacks, all supplanting him within a year and a half of being drafted. At the time, he's ranked like 13th in touchdowns, 7th in yards, 5th in passes attempted and completed. All of the volume stats, we don't need to talk about where he rates in terms of like completion percentage and touchdown to interception ratio. The things that you can get a lot of, he got a lot of. The thing is that like all of these stats more or less do kind of pale in comparison to, if not Tony Romo, then absolutely Tom Brady. It's a lot of forgotten legacy because of the people that came immediately after him. But I do think that it is an important legacy. This is a guy who legitimized what is now seen as like the model NFL franchise over the last couple decades. And that is despite it being a laughingstock when he arrived. He was, their franchise record was broken his first year when he threw for 3,645 yards. He then surpassed that six straight times for the Patriots. This is the way that like, look, Joe Flacco until Lamar Jackson came around was the greatest quarterback in Ravens history. 
sometimes there's just a very good act that follows you. There is one final act for the life of Drew Bledsoe I just want to touch on very quickly as we return to Walla Walla, where we started, where Drew Bledsoe in many ways started. And he has spent a lot of his time there post-retirement because he's gotten into the number one hobby in Walla Walla, which is wine. He and draftmate Rick Myber actually took like the, this step into the very football-dense celebrity wine business. Been very kind of like subtle about it. It's called Double Back Winery. I also found out that they have an employee named Josh McDaniels, but not that Josh McDaniels. So close. And that's all. That's Drew Bledsoe. I just, as soon as Xavier said that Drew Bledsoe wasn't a guy, I personally disagreed. I think he's a phenomenal one. I think he is one of those ones who like manages for circumstances out of his control, get forgotten about. So I do want to remember him. I do also realize I am asking a Jets and Eagles fan to sympathize with a Cowboys and Patriots player. And I know what his ultimate chances are here, but you know what? I got to bring up the story and I am very excited to hear some other stories about replaceable players. I'm glad you brought the story. I will say I've always felt worse for Mo Lewis because the dude was a multi-time All-Pro and the only thing anyone cares about for his career is that he injured Drew Bledsoe leading to Tom Brady. Like, if you Google Mo Lewis right now, the first picture that comes up is a picture of Drew Bledsoe. His Wikipedia page is about two paragraphs long one of them says, impact on NFL history. He is best known for being the catalyst for starting the New England Patriots dynasty that would span two decades. So you're this saying we need man... to ban Mo Lewis from the Hall of Guy for creating Tom Brady? No, I'm saying we need to ban Drew Bledsoe and Tom Brady for... Oh no, this is not going the way I planned at all! This has blown up in my face spectacularly! There is more info on Mo Lewis's Wikipedia page about Drew Bledsoe in Tom Brady, then there is Mo Lewis. And again, if you Google him, the first picture is of Drew Bledsoe. And this is a multi-time All-Pro and three-time Pro Bowler. Hey, four beats three. Two All-Pros beats zero. Yeah, but four Pro Bowls. Four Pro Bowls, Xavier. <laughs> I, um, the, the one thing that I need to give Drew Bledsoe credit for is, while it is very annoying seeing the Boston Celtics succeeding. It was cool to see him basically become like a figurative mascot when they were playing the Bucks that one year. And who was it? I think it was Eric Bledsoe said to like Marcus Smart, like, I don't know who you are. Or Smart said to Eric Bledsoe, I don't know who you are. And nobody know who Bledsoe is. And then Drew Bledsoe showed up courtside to the next game. Expressly for the purpose of being an avatar to like talk shit to Eric Bledsoe. Hard to respect the cowboy, but I can respect the self-deprecation, I guess, to be in on the bed. Speaking of self-deprecation, let's go ahead and turn to our New York Jets fan and see who our next replaceable guy is today. So I thought that a perfect sport to talk about replaceable guys is boxing. So unlike you know our previous guy, Peter Buckley, who gained his notoriety as a replacement who would always show up and take any fight, Boxing is filled with guys who show up, get wrung out over a couple of years, and they're replaced by someone new. Let alone, you know, just the regular people get kicked out or can't do fights and get replaced. You can be the flavor of the month, and then you get one bad loss, and it's like, all right, well, that's the end of your career. You're just going to kind of bounce around a little bit. It's a really hard sport to make a, like a full career in. Today, I want to talk about a guy who had a chance 
to be, you know, one of the next great heavyweights. And then gets overshadowed by a very famous replacement. Diaz might know who this guy is. Do you remember Jarrell Miller? Jarrell Miller? Can't say that I don't. Okay, this is good then. This is good. So, Jarrell Miller was born July 15th, 1988 in Brooklyn, New York. Grew up in the city, and after being attacked on the street as a teenager, he started taking up Muay Thai as a way to defend himself. He used the skills that he learned from Muay Thai to start both amateur kickboxing and amateur boxing. In April of 2007, as an 18-year-old, he competed in the New York Golden Gloves tournament in the heavyweight division, where he reached the final before losing to a 24-year-old with way more experience whose name was Tor Hamer. Later that year, he participated in Chuck Norris's World Combat League for the New Jersey Tigers. And for those who don't know, Chuck Norris had an MMA league for two years that was focused with on... teams? Yes, with teams that was focused on stand-up fighting. So there were any striking techniques from boxing, international-style kickboxing, or full-contact karate were allowed, but there was no clinching, no holding, no grappling. Just as long as you're standing, pretty much anything goes. The idea of a regional or even national fight league where it was like, all right, there's five weight classes. Each city has their five guys. That could be something. Well, Chuck Norris, he tried it. I will say it lasted two years. And Jarrell got in on the last year. His most famous match was during the conference finals, which were held in San Antonio. He defeated Pat Barry, who had been a K-1 veteran. Uh, K-1, for those who don't know, is like the major kickboxing organizer. Despite that, his team was bad, and then the league dissolved, so that's really the end of amateur kickboxing. But then he wanted to go do professional kickboxing on New York's Muay Thai scene. And again, he's a big dude. 6'4", 260. And so he's just heavyweight everywhere. And he's a heavyweight just, elbowing the shit out of people and kicking the shit out of people. For boxing specifically, it's, I, I like that we're talking about kickboxing right now, but for boxing specifically... Also doing kickboxing at the same time seems like bad training. It seems like you're just ingraining all of these techniques that you cannot do in one of your disciplines. I mean, that was what people were kind of low-key hoping for when Conor McGregor fought Floyd Mayweather. Like, McGregor would see, like, a certain move by Floyd. It would trigger an instinct and... Before he realizes it, boom, up kick to Floyd. I think that's half <laughs> of the reason any of us actually watched that fight. Because, like, fighting feels in many ways so reflex-based and so reactive. And it just seems nuts that you would prepare your body to have two different sets of reactions in similar combat situations. Well, in, in fairness, that is what our boy Tex Cobb did. And you know what? The more that we think about it, the more I have some respect for Tex Cobb. Yeah, they are different skill sets. And so while he's on the New York kickboxing scene, he also decides to turn pro in actual boxing. And he makes his debut in professional boxing on July 18th, 2009. Wins his first match by TKO against a man named Darius Whitson. But he decides he really wants to focus on kickboxing because K1 had heavily recruited him to join their circuit. Their circuit. So over the next four years, he only boxes four times and focuses really on the kickboxing. 
he makes his promotional debut for K1 at the K1 World Grand Prix in Los Angeles in September of 2012, and he wins. And he ends up going to the World Grand Prix in Tokyo the next month, where he wins again. So then he gets to go to the World Grand Prix final, which, despite being called the 2012 final, was in March of 2013 in Zagreb, Croatia, where he fought against a guy who has made a previous appearance on this show, Mirko Krokop, who we know from the Vondrele Silva episode. Krokop, in his homeland, does beat Jarrell Miller by unanimous decision, handing him his first professional loss. Miller fights a couple more times, but loses again to Krokop in a rematch. At this point, he's won every match he's had except for the two against Krokop. But then he gets a doping suspension in 2014. And there's not a lot of information on what he got busted for for kickboxing doping. But he does leave kickboxing and decides to focus on boxing again. Over the next couple of years, he starts climbing the ladder. He wins most of his fights by TKO. By the end of 2015, he was 15-0-1. The only draw coming from the period when he was mainly doing kickboxing and wasn't really focused on the boxing. So 2016, he has a fight on January 23rd against Donovan Dennis for the interim WBA-NABA heavyweight title. He defeats him by TKO in the seventh round. And despite still pretty much being a nobody, he calls out then IBF champion Charles Martin, Deontay Wilder, Tyson Fury, and Anthony Joshua, saying like, I'm just as good as any of you. I'm gonna, I want to fight. I'm going to beat you all. A month later, Shannon Briggs gets stripped of the NABA title. And so Jerome Miller is officially a quote-unquote heavyweight world champion, even though it's like, as anyone boxing knows, those are like the not really serious belts they had. But he still had them. He still had them. Any of the four-letter organizations, you don't trust them. And a couple of the three, you don't either, but definitely not a four-letter in boxing. So This is good for me to know. So at this point, WBO ranked him as the number 11 heavyweight fighter in the world. IBF had him as number 15. And he goes to fight for the vacant WBO-NABO heavyweight title. And he knocks out Nick Divas in the second round. Again, afterwards, he calls out every top heavyweight he could think of. Vlad Klitschko, Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua again, and Deontay Wilder again. But he's still not getting a chance to fight any of those guys. Mostly gets to fight like former world title contenders who are really on the downswing of their careers. Guys like Fred Cassie, Gerald Washington. And then in November of 2017, he makes his like HBO primetime card debut as a co-feature against Marius Wach who was also a former title contender. At this point, was 37 years old. And Walk, despite coming in as a career-high 268 pounds, being the heaviest opponent that Miller had ever fought, was still 12 pounds lighter than Miller at 280, which was actually low for him. Usually he was up like fighting close to 300 at this point. He has a tougher-than-expected fight. He blames it on the fact that he had lost so much weight going into this and was lighter than usual. But he does beat Walk in the ninth round by TKO. So after this, he's like, all right, I've really proven myself against all these former title contenders. I really should get a shot against one of the big boys. And says after the fight that, all right, I know I'm not going to get Wilder or Joshua yet. But I should be able to fight Dillian White, who is also a former kickboxer, 
or Joseph Parker. And if I win those, then you got to give me Deontay Wilder or Anthony Joshua. Instead, plans get made to fight another younger up-and-comer, which is still a, a better thing for him, named Trevor Bryan. But those plans fall through due to some promoting issues. So once again, he fights an aging former title challenger and 37-year-old Frenchman, Johan Duhapus. Miller is 60 pounds heavier than this 37-year-old man and beats the shit out of him. Wins by unanimous decision, 119-109, 119-109, 117-111. It's not even a contest. But at this point, he's been wasting a lot of years fighting aging guys who are way past their prime and really missing out on any of his chances. And after this fight, he said, all right, I really want to fight Anthony Joshua. Like, I want him to come to Brooklyn. I want to fight him in New York. I want this to happen. But on June 16, 2018, the IBF ordered a final eliminator fight between Miller and Kubrat Pulev. The winner would then become the mandatory challenger to Anthony Joshua's IBF belt. But once again, negotiations on the fight break down. Allegations are that Miller did not want to fight Pulev on the road in his native Bulgaria. He thought it wouldn't be like it, it wouldn't be a very fair fight if he had to travel all the way to Bulgaria. Extremely hostile crowd and was trying to get some sort of neutral venue. Didn't work out. Pulev went on to fight Huey Fury, who's Tyson's cousin. And Miller, for like the seventh time at this point, fights a guy with one foot in retirement, the 41-year-old Thomas Adamic, who had been a WBC and IBF champion over a decade ago. This dude has nothing left in the tank, gets knocked out in the second round, immediately retires. Still, Miller has not gotten a chance, partly due to different contenders having rights before him and also due to promoter issues. Just like, I've been doing this for years, I really want a, sh a shot. He then decides to try to get a different fight. So in terms of agreed to fight uh, a 45-year-old boxer named Trey Aquendo. This guy had last fought five years prior, but then won a lawsuit against the guy who beat him, who named uh, Ruslan Chagaev. And because he had won this lawsuit, was entitled to like a big fight. So Miller was going to fight this forty-five-year-old. Judge could just hand that out. They can just hand it. Yeah, you get a title bout because well, so guy... essentially Chagaev's party like refused to pay him, and because they like broke a bunch of rules, like refusing to pay him, it took years for like a lawsuit against him. And essentially, after he won this lawsuit, he was like legally owed a title opportunity by the WBA. So he gets a chance to fight this guy who is, again, 45 and has not fought in five years. But Oquendo turns it down because he said there wasn't enough time to properly implement the new Voluntary Anti-Doping Association rules on PEDs. And I just, because I immediately recognize the name. Frey Oquendo is like probably the best Puerto Rican heavyweight boxer, if not the best like top three of all time. Looking at his professional record, the guys that he's lost to, this is like the definition of like a quad A fighter. His first loss was to David Tua by TKO. He lost to Chris Bird by unanimous decision. He lost to John Rees by TKO. He lost to Evander Holyfield by unanimous decision. And he took James Tony to a split decision, which he did lose. But like, those are all legitimate world champion boxers that he just wasn't quite good enough to beat. So shout out Frey Okendo. He knocked out Clifford Etienne 
who uh, Mike Tyson <laughs> also knocked out. So they got something in common. But again, he does not fight Freya Kendo because the new PED rules thing. So instead, Miller fights Romanian Bogdan Dinu. Goes into the fight weighing 315 pounds, 80 pounds heavier than Dinu. He predicted pre-fight that he's going to knock him out within five rounds, and he does. He knocks him out in the fourth round and wins that fight. Finally, in February of 2019, Miller gets announced as Anthony Joshua's next opponent. And he was set the challenge for Joshua's WBA, IBF, WBO, and IBO heavyweight titles at Madison Square Garden in June of 2019. After over three and a half years of calling up the big boys, this was his shot. It's also pretty funny because as big as this was for Jarrell Miller, uh, Anthony Joshua and his camp were getting a lot of shit for taking this fight. There was like a whole conspiracy that they had like intentionally offered really shit terms to Wilder, Tyson Fury, Dillian White because he was afraid to fight them and essentially gave them terrible terms so they would say no so he could say, oh, well, the only person I can fight then is Jarrell Miller because he's the only one who would accept these terms. But to the chagrin of all parties, this fight never happened. In April, Miller gets denied a boxing license in New York because of a doping violation. His blood sample was positive for HGH. A week later, his urine sample comes back with two more banned substances, EPO and GW1516. After initially denying it, Miller posts a video on social media where he admits it and apologizes. I have the whole quote. All grammatical errors are exactly as he said them. This is your boy. Big baby Miller here. A lot can be said right now. I'm going to get straight to the point. I messed up. I messed up. I made a bad call. A lot of ways to handle the situation. I handled, I handled it wrongly, and I'm paying the price for it. Missed out on is a big opportunity, and I'm hurting on the inside. My heart is bleeding right now. I hurt my family, my friends, my team, my supporters. But I'm going to own up to it. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to correct it, and I'm going to come back. I'm humbled by the experience. I understand how to handle certain things. I'm going to leave it at that. I love you guys, and I appreciate you guys out there. And as fighters, we go through a lot. I don't want to make it a bad name for ourselves. It's time to do right and get right, so I thank you guys. There, there, big baby Miller. It's, it's I, okay. I, we respect the admission and the, the humbleness of the apology. He, he sounds like he's lesson. And it's funny because Anthony Joshua's promoter, Eddie Hearn, went kind of wild at this because... Miller had accused Anthony Joshua of using PEDs like leading up to the fight. Quote, to be honest, I can't believe it. You always want to give an athlete the benefit of the doubt, but this leaves no doubt. It worries me that fighters feel the only way they can beat AJ is by taking banned substances. One thing we know is Miller is out. AJ's new opponent for June 1st will be announced next week. Clean fighters only need apply. This doping suspension cost Miller a career-high purse, about $5 million. For context, the most he'd ever made from a fight was 500000 So this was 10 times more than he ever would have made. And this is essentially the end of his career, because a year later, he gets suspended for doping again. But what is the key to this story and key to the topic is that Joshua still had that June fight. Miller was a replaceable lower-level title challenger, AJ and his team just needed to find another guy to fit that bill with less than two months of prep time. With one month until the fight, it was announced that they had their replacement. Diaz, who is the replacement fighter for this fight? Well, look, if you're going to get rid of Big Baby, 
Let's get another just kind of fat guy in there. We trained for a fat guy. We want a fat guy. And we want Andy Ruiz to step into that ring. That's right. Andy Ruiz Jr. Another guy in a very similar spot as Drill Miller gets his chance. And he beats the shit out of Anthony Joshua as uh, causing one of the greatest upsets in modern heavyweight history. Well, let's let's tell the whole story. It's not that he beat the shit out of Anthony Joshua. It's that he looked like a far inferior opponent for like four rounds. He gets knocked down by Anthony Joshua. Chris Mannix, the fucking worst boxing commentator I've ever heard in my life, says Anthony Joshua is a clinical finisher. Watch this. 30 seconds later, Ruiz gets his knockdown. He would then knock him down three more times. Honestly, the fight could have been called two rounds earlier. Joshua was clearly... He was called in the seventh round, and by that round, Joshua was just getting knocked around the ring. And it's wild because, again, Anthony Joshua, this young guy, considered like the great, like the best in the sport, in incredible shape, and here's a fat Mexican guy just beating the crap out of him, who they thought he was gonna like gonna gonna get walked over. We don't have to go into the fact that Joshua called his you know a, a rematch for that afterwards. Boxing is a, a, a sport where nearly everyone's replaceable. You fight long enough, you see yourself both as a replacement and as replaced. Terrell Miller spent his entire career hoping to fight a true star, instead only ever fought against other replaceable guys. Finally gets his chance to step out of the shadows and sabotages himself, which allows another replaceable guy to come in and get his moment in the sun. And I think that is a great story and a perfect representation of this chosen topic. Now, one thing I want to draw a little bit of attention to before we move on. I did, of course, say it sounded like he learned his lesson as we were doing that. That's because I had you know pulled up some information on Drell Miller as we talked all through this. And I want to just make it very clear. He did not he did learn not his learn. lesson. No, he did. I, get paid for the exact same substance. Yeah, I said that. Yeah, I, uh, I said I said he got banned a year later. That was the end of his career. Well, let's he, just emphasize He did not that. learn his lesson. Yeah. Uh, Roe Miller he, never learned his lesson. He, he did is, fight in an exhibition this year. Yeah, he did, but he, he has it's not an had exhibition. a It's an fight. exhibition. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've got fungible well, boundaries. I don't think it's disqualifying, but we should also mention. He fought a, uh, a real fight, too, didn't he? In like, Dubai in March. As real a fight as that. I'm just saying. It's on his professional record. That's all I'm saying. Obviously, it's, we know what what the deal was there, but yeah, we I'm just we, we we know we we We've know that he's about Middle Eastern money today. Yeah. So if you get dinged for doping twice in boxing, once in kickboxing, and lose your chance at fighting actual fighters, that Middle Eastern money looks pretty good. But that doesn't mean it was a real professional fight. And I think we're about to get the professional fight that we want. Because if I'm not mistaken, Diaz has got a fighter to bring forward today as well. Yes, yes. So I wanted to go with MMA for this one. And we're going to talk about a guy that, kind of like Xavier said, he's going to find himself on both ends of the replacement, replaceable spectrum in his career. Almost every sports fan in the country has heard of UFC at this point. It's the premier organization for MMA. And to the untrained eye, it might seem like this is just two guys going in there fighting with no rules whatsoever. But there's actually a lot of rules in place to ensure that it's uh, as fair a fight as possible. There's no small digit manipulation, no eye gouging, uh, blows below the belt are banned. You can't kick a downed opponent. You can't throw a downward elbow. 
So there, there's a lot of things in place to try to make it as much of a controlled chaos, a sweet science as possible. And the most obvious rule in place is weight classes, right? You need to be the same weight as the person that you're fighting. So all those rules are in place now, but absolutely none of those rules were in place at the inception of the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Because at the very beginning, UFC had a very different format, whereas now it's essentially all kinds of different cards are put together. You have your main events, you have your UFC fight night, you have your Ultimate Fighter, you have all this stuff. I would presume they were still using a nonagon at the time. They hadn't cut it down to eight sides. They still thought nine was necessary. They did still have eight. The octagon they was what to eight they that quickly. On. Okay, credit to them there, where where credit is due. I think they might have wanted to go to nine in the original design, but I mean they just didn't have enough budget for one more side. But at the very beginning, the Ultimate Fighting Championship was basically in place to answer the question that is presented at. The bar. The ultimate question. What's going to happen if you put a sumo wrestler up against a karate expert? What's going to happen if you put a jujitsu guy in the ring with a boxer? These kinds of arguments you always have. Maybe they result in friends taking a friendly fight a little too seriously at the bar. But now, thankfully, we don't need those fights anymore. We have this event put together, which is essentially taking fighters from different disciplines and putting them into an eight-man tournament that's going to be competed on one night. We're starting with eight fighters, all different weight classes. The smallest fighter in the field was 171 pounds. The largest was 425. A very, very wide array here. And the only rules in place really are no eye gouging and no biting. The other thing, which is in stark contrast to what Xavier went through, maybe Drell Miller just came around a little too late for his time. There is explicitly in the rules of UFC 1, no doping probes. Don't ask, don't tell. You take what you take, I take what I take, and we get in the ring and we fight. It's our dream of having the MLB season where everyone can take as many drugs as they want. You just have people hitting 600-foot dingers. Well, and, you know, the sweet science itself, I like that there is then a chemical scientific aspect added to it, which is who can make the best drugs, who can make the best steroids. It's, it's one part biology. It's a way biology. for nerds to get in on fighting. Exactly. It's, it, you know, it's one part biology, it's one part chemistry, but it's all parts crazy fighting. The, the, the early days of UFC are crazy, but the one thing that if, if you know the history of the UFC, if you know the history of MMA... You know that the early days of the Ultimate Fighting Championship were dominated by Hoist Gracie. Hoist Gracie is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu expert. And basically, no other discipline had the amount of grappling counters and the, the emphasis on quickness of movement. No other discipline knew what the fuck to do with Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I, mean, it's not I, just I remember that... it being the first time I heard about it. Like it, it was described as if it was a secret cheat code fighting style. I mean, and that's basically what it is at this point. The original UFCs were also partially organized by the Gracie team to essentially demonstrate the superiority of Brazilian jiu-jitsu as a discipline to all other fighting disciplines. And, you know, the thesis statement is pretty easily proven through the first two. UFC 1 takes him a combined 4 minutes and 59 seconds to get his three submission victories. For context, one round of UFC is five minutes. Goes into UFC 2, 
Takes five minutes, one second for his first round victory this time. It's also a 16-man tournament, so he has to win four bouts. But it takes him just 355 to win those next three victories. For that, Hoist Gracie is still the only fighter in MMA history to win four bouts in one night. UFC 3, now it's kind of getting a little boring if it's just Hoist Gracie dominating. We need to set up a rivalry. And the rivalry that they want to set up is Hoist Gracie against the American boy, Ken Shamrock. Was not in UFC 2, but he did fight Hoist Gracie in UFC 1. Got off to a good start for the first minute, but then Hoist did one of those crazy Brazilian jiu-jitsu things. Got him in a choke, and that was it. I need to clarify, that cannot be his real name. It's 100% his real name. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking stupid, I love that so much. I mean, there's multiple Shamrocks, just like there's multiple Gracies. Well, sure, there's three leaves and there's four leaves. He was born... Ken Kilpatrick. So we will say that. But That's he is now almost the same as Shamrock. I mean, Kilpatrick's pretty much the And Ken McGillicuddy Kilpatrick. Frank Shamrock was Frank Juarez. So, like, you know, it. it yeah, that's stolen valor. <laughs> yeah, that's that's like uh, Emilio, yeah, Estevez Emilio Estevez to the, to the Sheen family. So, yeah, a little stolen valor there. But no, Ken Shamrock earned his Irish pride. And this is what they wanted to set up, you know. We got Ken Shamrock on one side of the bracket. We got Hoist Gracie on the other. And we got six other guys that are here kind of just to be here as fodder until we get to that main event. And it turns out who's going to get the win, who's going to get the loss. Neither of them loses at UFC 3. Uh, but neither would compete in the final either. And that's why I want to talk about my guy today, Steve Jenham. Very simple. Very simple name. Very simple guy. What's not simple is finding out what day he was born. There's not a ton of information available on the internet about Steve Jenham. Wikipedia claims he was born circa 1961, while his IMDb page specifically claims September 23rd, 1963. So I'm going to lean with that one. The fact that they're claiming a specific date that's still in that general area, I think is good evidence. So for our purposes, September 23rd, 1963. The one thing that's not in dispute is where he's born, where he lives, and where he makes his whole life is Omaha, Nebraska. Not a ton available on his early life on the internet. Don't know if he competed in high school sports or anything like that. But as I said, the one thing we know is he's an Omaha lifer. After he graduates high school, he enrolls at Nebraska main campus in Omaha. And the one thing that he discovers there is the Taekwondo gym. He's never done anything with any kind of martial arts, but starts in a Taekwondo gym, gets his feet wet, realizes he likes it. So he starts training in ninjutsu specifically togakure ryu ninjutsu uh, which is known as the school of the hidden door it's described as a freer form of ninjutsu which encourages less structure and a more free-flowing style as opposed to a regimented if opponent does this you do this it's encouraging free-flowing going with what feels right in the moment and in that school he would earn a third degree black belt so Gets his feet wet in Taekwondo, but it's this ninjutsu discipline that is what he really stakes his claim in. But he's not here to do anything professionally. He will occasionally fight people from like rival schools, rival dojos. Um, They'll have competitions, but there's nothing professional. This is really just a discipline for him to focus on for himself. And after he graduates from Nebraska, Omaha, he goes on to enroll in the Omaha Police Department. So continuing his life, wanting to continue his service in Omaha. 
this ninjutsu background helps him a lot with apprehending suspects in like a safe way that's you know safe for him safe for them no illegal holds used you know very very fun arrest for everybody that he's able to execute because of this skill sorry very fun arrests very fun you know just it's very professionally done plays a pillow okay, down very for professionally you done we can work with that i mean he's a ninja so he's got to do ninja stuff of course he has to do ninja stuff but i mean like i said has no interest in fighting professionally but he is interested in professional fighting before the ultimate fighting championship is formed there's kind of like an underground market for videos of these challenges that hoist gracie hosts at his gym in california He's taken an interest in this, and he hears that Hoist Gracie's going to compete in this Ultimate Fighting Championship, which is what we laid out at the beginning. All different fighters, different disciplines. Um, so he and his buddies from the department get together. They watch this pay-per-view, and his buddies are kind of thinking that, oh, this is about to be like WWF. This, this will be entertaining, but like this isn't real fighting. And one of the first fights of the night, Gerard Goudeau, who is a karate expert from the Netherlands, was going against Tyler Tully, who is a sumo wrestler from Hawaii. Gerard Goudeau weighs in at about 195 pounds. Taylor Tully is that 425 pounds that we mentioned. And when Gerard Goudeau lands a kick to Taylor Tully, which sends three teeth flying into the front row, all of a sudden, everybody watching knows this shit's for real. Uh, those were the days... You go and you get splattered in blood and teeth and you really can see someone die. This well, and this, well, and like this is one of like the quote unquote iconic moments from UFC 1, but it's one of the techniques that's now like very banned. It's like if you go back and watch like, a 1991 best plays in the NFL compilation and then there's five minutes of just intense head drama. That's kind of what this was. It was like a, it was a down Taylor Tooley. Basically, it's not quite a running start, but he gets to plant and like, Justin Tucker that shit a little bit. You're not allowed to do that anymore. But you could do it in UFC 1. And this, you know, now has he and his buddies hooked. When UFC 2 comes around, they get the pay-per-view again. They see Hoist dominate again. And shortly after UFC 2, Steve starts noticing ads all around calling for fighters to send in their resumes for UFC 3. He kind of doesn't really think anything of it, but... His friends at the department know how into it he was, that he gathered them for the pay-per-view for UFC 1. They know that he has a black belt. Why not throw your hat in the ring? So he applies, and he gets back some decent news. He's not going to be in the field of eight, but he is going to be named as an alternate for UFC 3. For the format at this time, the alternate isn't necessarily a person that a week before somebody gets popped for a drug violation. Again, no drug violations in UFC at this time. It was a freer time. It was a better time. Some may argue. I'm not arguing. I'm just saying some met. <laughs> but the alternates are on site basically to ensure that the fans don't riot. This is, again, a fairly lawless era of MMA and of UFC. So if something happens where somebody gets injured and, you know, people paid to see seven fights and now there's only going to be four, we have these alternates. We'll put these alternates out there. And the alternates are also specifically in place for, you know, hopefully everybody gets through, no injuries. The alternates will fight each other right before the main event to give the people for the main event a little more time to recover. 
and to tide that gap a little bit. So he knows he's probably going to fight in some form at UFC 3. He just doesn't know if it's going to be like the Constellation match before the real main event. And during the actual event itself, if you're one of these alternates, it's kind of like an emergency goalie situation for NHL where you get a ticket to the game and you're kind of just like in the crowd, chilling, you're watching, you're just another fan. If it turns out that an alternate's needed, if they get both of them at the same time, literally the policy is flip a coin. Otherwise, it's the first person that they find. Like, hey, some shit happened. We need you to fight in five minutes. First person you find is the person that's going to go back. As it turns out, there is going to be an alternate required in UFC 3. Keith Hackney is a karate expert who is cross-trained in boxing. He gets a knockout victory of Emmanuel Yarbrough, another sumo wrestler. But in doing it, he broke his hand, so he had to drop out. We don't get this coin flip, though, because our boy Steve is kind of just gallivanting about, and they can't find him. So they say, all right, fuck that. Felix Mitchell, get on in there. Felix Mitchell, as the alternate, now advances straight to the semifinals of UFC 3. It almost sounds like it's a better thing to just be an alternate and hope that right before the finals, someone gets hurt and you don't have to fight anybody else. I mean, like, you might not get a chance. But if you do get a chance, you are immediately, like, you have better chances than if you had had to start from the beginning. It is an interesting game theory where, like, you're banking on something unfortunate happening to somebody else. I will say right now in these early runs, it seems to be a pretty safe bet that something unfortunate will happen. (laughs) So they got their UFC 1 not needing an alternate. They did need to use one of the alternates for UFC 2, but they didn't need to go to, to both. So Felix Mitchell gets in, and Felix Mitchell advances straight to the semifinals to fight against Ken Shamrock. Good fight, grappling for most of it, back and forth. Ken Shamrock ends up getting the submission. So Ken Shamrock now advances to the final, and he awaits the winner of Hoist Gracie versus Harold Howard in the other final. The issue is, Hoist Gracie had his toughest fight so far in UFC in the first round. He fought this guy, Kimo Leopoldo who has a taekwondo background. He also had a 50-pound weight advantage, weighing 220 pounds with just 5% body fat. Like, this dude was fucking ripped. With a lot of the grappling, just because of his sheer physical strength, he's kind of throwing around Hoist. His techniques aren't as refined, but he is just much larger and much stronger. A full Um, child's worth of muscle. It's remarkable, like, to to see this fight and to see how much bigger uh, Kimo was. He does ultimately lock in an arm lock, Hoist Gracie, but I mean, he's exhausted after this. He literally is carried back to the locker room by his team afterwards. And he comes out to fight Harold Howard, but it's clear as he's like making his way to the ring, he just doesn't look right. Doesn't really have his legs with him. He's probably about to get his ass kicked. So his team says, we're not going to put him in this position. We're withdrawing him. So we're not going to get the dream matchup. We're not going to get Ken Shamrock versus Hoist Gracie. We're going to get Ken Shamrock against Harold Howard, the Canadian karate expert. But there's only one other problem. Ken Shamrock fucked up his ankle in his semifinal fight against Felix Mitchell. So organizers are literally trying to figure out on the fly, what the fuck do we do here? They No contingencies for this. And the commentary team, and I want to point this out, UFC 3 is available in full on YouTube. You can watch this whole entire event with all the fights and all the commentary. The lead play-by-play was Brian Kilmeade, who is currently a Fox News 
I think he does that morning show that they do. Yeah, so he's the play-by-play guy, and the color commentator was Jim Brown. <laughs> that's fun. That's that's a fun pairing. And I think they also had a third person that was like the hey, this is the person that like actually can kind of talk intelligently about what the fuck's going on in this ring right now, commentator. But yeah, Jim Brown was fantastic with you know a lot of narrative-based commentary. All that to say that like you can hear them on the broadcast, like very confused about what's going on. There's a lot of like, and I'm now being told that slowly getting the news. And what they finally decide is, all right, well, fuck, we have two fighters standing at this point. We got Harold Howard and we got Steve Jenner, this alternate that we like kind of know where he is, but we're having a hard time finding him. They do track him down. And so Steve Jenner immediately advances to the championship bout of UFC 3. The replacement got him this spot. The replacement caused the injury that got the other replacement a shot at the title. This is replacement solidarity. It was a conspiracy the whole time. Look, we, we love solidarity in our unions. We love solidarity amongst our fighters. We hope that the UFC will one day unionize. Fucking, come on, get smart fighters. But anyway, we're focused on UFC 3. We're focused on Steve Jenham coming from the Omaha Police Department and a Taekwondo gym on campus in college, and now having the chance to become UFC champion. It's a quick fight, but it's a good one. Steve, as you might expect, starts a little bit slow. He's kind of like out of his depth here at the very beginning. And he eats an uppercut that immediately opens a cut over his eye. They grapple for a bit, but Jenum finally wins the takedown. He gets top position and starts just hammering down punches Harold Howard has no counter. His corner has seen enough. And at just under two minutes, Steve Jenham claims the victory. He becomes UFC three champion. And in about a 15 minute span, he goes from not even competing in UFC three to being its champion and taking home the $60,000 prize. This is controversially. He is a replacement in this moment. But I, but I do love this so far. I love the replacement coming in from the top rope. He competed for less than two minutes. Yeah, this is fucking great. You probably see the commentators who you're only supposed to essentially hear the voice of ten times more than you see him in this entire broadcast. Oh, he's very much like if UFC three were an anime, he's just like kind of like the Deus Ex Machina fucking character that appears at the very end of the season. It's like. Oh, yeah, don't worry. Fucking Steve Jenham came in and uh, he saved the day and he became UFC champion. UFC 4 is scheduled for just three months after UFC 3. We were trying to build a rivalry for UFC 3, but now we have a real story to sell for UFC 4. We have Hoist Gracie, the two-time champion. He was unable to complete. He was unable to defend his title. This new hotshot comes in and takes it. This is the storyline that we're going to sell. And UFC 4 was billed as Revenge of the Warriors. So they're set up on opposite sides of the bracket. We're trying to set up this dramatic championship match that we're hopefully going to get Hoist Gracie against Steve Jenham to settle who is the ultimate, ultimate fighter. First round, Steve's going to fight against Melton Bowen, who comes from a kickboxing background. It's a back and forth bout, but ultimately Steve's grappling gives him the advantage He takes Bowen to the ground. He's able to secure an arm bar. And it's one of the most 
exaggerated arm bars you've ever seen. Like it almost looks like in WWE where the person like stands and like holds the person's arm for a second, looks at the crowd and then whips down to the ground to lock it in. It wasn't quite that long, but it was longer than Bowen should have had a counter. But again, we're in this very early era. Kickboxer doesn't know what the fuck to do with this grappling shit. So he gets the, the arm bar in just shy of five minutes. He wins his first round fight. This is where the replacement becomes the replaced. In that fight, he suffers a knee injury. And ultimately, he's unable to continue. He has to withdraw from UFC going into the second round. He gets replaced by Marcus Bassett, who lost via an arm triangle choke to Dan Severn. Dan Severn advanced to the championship of the evening, where he lost by a triangle choke to Hoist Gracie. Royce Gracie reclaiming his title, but just like in UFC 2, not fighting the person who took the belt. At this point, you know, now we have UFC 5 coming up, but this this is kind of getting to be a lot for Steve. He's just like a fucking cop that kind of wrote in as a joke almost for this, and then he ended up being its champion. He does fight three more times professionally, one more time under the UFC banner at Ultimate, ultimate, 1995. Yes, it is two ultimates <laughs> in that event name. Buffalo, 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 Buffalo. Ultimate, ultimate, 1995. He goes against Tank Abbott. That might be a name that is familiar to listeners and to both of you because Tank Abbott was once the opponent of Kevin Ferguson, a.k.a. Kimbo Slice. That was, mm. uh, that was Kimbo's second professional opponent. Tank Abbott... Lost to Kimbo, but he did get the victory against Steve when he caused him to tap to a neck crank just over a minute in. His next fight would be against the man who was the UFC 7 champion, Marco Ruas. He lost by TKO to strikes in this fight. And in his fifth fight, he fights against Jason Godsey. Makes it just over two minutes before he's forced to tap out. And at that point... He's now lost three fights in a row. He's fighting real fighters now. Kind of realizing, you know what? This might not be for me. This was a fun little chapter of my life. I don't want to pursue it further professionally. And he retires from fighting. A lot of it also, he said, had to do with the fact that early MMA competitions were of questionable legality due to you know not necessarily being sanctioned by sports commissions. It was a debate of if they even fall into that jurisdiction. So questionable legality. He thought, hey, as a police officer, probably wouldn't look great if I got caught fighting in an illegal like fighting ring. If so, I remember correctly, also from the Kimbo Slice story, yes. it was not looked on too kindly when the one yes. cop fought him. Was not. So decides it's probably a good time to get out. So he retires from fighting, but today he is still... Not retired from the Omaha Police Department. Uh, he's been serving for over 30 years at this point. He is, depending on which internet source we choose to believe, about 61 to 63. So he's nearing that retirement age. But what I think is beautiful about it is that the, the people that he serves with now are those same people who convinced him some 30 years ago at this point. Why not send in your application for this thing? Why not see what happens? And, you know, if not for the support of his friends, he may not have been able to have what turns out to be the night of a lifetime to, to become UFC champion, to be 
the recipient of $60,000 straight cash homie. Shout out Randy Moss. And to think what UFC has become now is like certainly like far beyond what, what Steve Jenham could have imagined when he sent in that application. I think the story of Steve Jenham, you know, what this all serves to prove is sometimes you just need to be in the right place at the right time, but you also need to be a little later than the first time because the actual right time is the second time when you get to skip straight to the championship and you can earn $60,000 for just one minute and 27 seconds of fighting. He may be the greatest bag-getting replacement in sports history. His being replaced at UFC 4 creates perhaps the greatest what-if in early UFC history. And while he may not be the greatest bag-getter in sports history, I do want to say he may be the guyest. It's pretty convincing. I mean, like, looking at this stat line, he spent, by my count, about 11 minutes and 15 seconds fighting in his entire career. And presumably, like, if he made 40K combined on the other four fights, that's a solid six figures for 11 minutes of your time. That's a good rate. About, about $10,000 a minute, almost. This is fascinating because doing some internet research, two things. One, they say that he couldn't continue in UFC 4 due to swelling of his hands after punching the guy in the head too many times, causing his hands to be unusable for the next fight. Also in UFC 4, Hoist Gracie fought for 25 minutes over three fights because there was no time limit and no rounds and therefore no judges. So the championship fight went for 16 minutes straight. So what you're saying is it took him 24 minutes to win a UFC title, whereas it took Steve Jenham one and a half minutes to win a title. By my math, that makes Steve Jenham approximately 16 times better than Hoist Gracie at winning UFC titles? Roughly. Roughly. And yeah, like I, if, if I didn't mention that at the beginning, yeah, there was no judges. There was no end of the fight. It was you go to either somebody gets knocked out, somebody taps, or your corner stops it. Those are the only three things. So truly the wild, wild west era of UFC. But no, it's, I think if we're, if we're going to get into it, I think. It, food- if I may, can I interrupt with one thing before we get into it? Because. Go ahead. I had a brain worm that I had to deal with when you started talking about the origins of UFC and how it's supposed to be like, what fighting style is the best? Because I started thinking about the Spike TV series, Deadly Warrior, as I think would be natural. Uh, you guys remember this when it was like in season one, kind of reasonable things like Viking versus Samurai or Spartan versus Ninja. Um, it got kind of unhinged later on. In the second one, we we have some like solid fights. We've got an Aztec Jaguar warrior versus like an African Zande warrior. We also have a Nazi versus a Viet Cong. And we do also start to pit real people against one another, which is how we get the matchup of Vlad the Impaler versus Sun Tzu. In season three of Deadliest Warrior, they switched to a squad-based one. So now it's commanders. And so I do just want to run through a couple of these real quick. The season premiere was George Washington versus Napoleon Bonaparte. You've got Saddam Hussein versus Pol Pot. And then you finish the season with vampires versus zombies. So I'm, I'm sorry. I just had to talk about Deadliest Warrior. I mean, even season one was nuts. It did not take them long to get crazy. Like they had the IRA versus the Taliban in season one. That's a good matchup, honestly. <laughs> the mafia in there twice it's wild anyway no let's get into it let's talk about our replacements here 
well, are replacements and are replaced. Yes, um, the, remember, because, remember the topic that James gave sure, us was was replaceable. replaceable. Replaceable, exactly, exactly. I mean, if I can just say for Steve, like I do think he is the most not by our Hall's definition of guy, but by the common definition of like this is just a fucking guy that did ninjutsu in his free time, liked it for a personal discipline, sent in this joke of an application and ends up becoming UFC three champion versus I think our other two entrants are a little more classically trained, I guess you might want to say. They're not outsider artists as guys, so to speak. Exactly. I do like that. He was a ninja. Like I I like that part. He's the the ninja cop. The only they thing did, that, gives me- that was his like billing for like UFC four and like for future fights. Like it was Steve the Ninja Cop Genom. Like this guy's a jujitsu guy. This guy's a karate guy. This guy's a ninja, and I like that. I'm like slightly hesitant because I'm thinking about like like the biggest moment of his career was him replacing someone else. But that's just True. the way that I was thinking theme. about this was like being replaced as your as your biggest moment. And that's where, like, even though I hate Drew Bledsoe and all Patriots, Bledsoe's, like, thing was being replaced. So, like, it's tough where I like the story of Steve better. I feel like Bledsoe fits the theme a little better. And that's where I'm, like, having, a, like, a disconnect. I mean, the thing I'll say for yours, Xavier, is Jarrell Miller being replaced is probably one of the most consequential events in the past Decade of the heavyweight division. Oh, definitely. That 100%. I mean, I wasn't going to, like... Because I, I like the stories, but like, I will say that of Jarrell Miller, his whole career was being a replaceable guy, fighting a bunch of replaceable guys who would replace other guys, and then his one chance to not be replaceable, he fucks it up, and the replaceable guy who replaces him actually does something consequential and becomes a household name. I can address my feelings about Jarrell Miller a little easier than the other two, because while I I very much agree with that summation of it, the vibe that I got as we went through the story was slightly less replaced and slightly more shuffled around. And maybe that's like splitting hairs, but there did feel a, a little bit more of a like, sometimes his opponent gets switched out. Sometimes it's just he's being matched up against whoever is kind of left out there. It was a lot like, oh, we'll just take who we can get versus active. Oh, we were setting this up. And then the final one, there was a big falling through at the end. A lot of it was just kind of that shuffling around. The other thing is someone like Drew Bledsoe, when he's replaced, is being cheated by circumstances. Uh, your dude did just kind of cheat. And that's the, the yeah. reason for it. Again, I, I guess that's why I wasn't like really advocating for Jarrell Miller. Yeah. Because like it is an incredible like story of him being replaced and all boxing fans know of the person who replaced him. Maybe they didn't know who Andy Ruiz had replaced in that fight. They don't remember that. So that's why I liked it. But again, he, he is a guy who doped multiple times and now is taking Middle East money to fight random guys in, in Dubai. So I liked the story and that's why I brought it, but I wasn't going to like fight to the death to defend it, which is why You're I was not going going more on my feelings on Bledsoe fitting the topic, but also liking the idea of the ninja. I mean, Bledsoe's got the numbers on times being replaced, even if J.P. Lossman is unimportant in the grand scheme of things. Sorry to any J.P. Lossman heads out there. 
That is crazy. That's just how cursed of a franchise the Bills are. Like, well, the Cowboys got like their third best quarterback of all time. I think that's pretty reasonable. Oh, yeah. And the Patriots got their best quarterback of all time. Patriots got Tom Brady. <laughs> and then the Bills got JP fucking Lossman for like third times the charm, replaced Drew Bledsoe again. Didn't work out for him. Well, middle time. The third time was the charm. Tony Romo's pretty solid. Right, 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 right. This is a tough one for me. So it, it's it's a little less tough for me because as I brought up, as we were going through there, Steve Jenham is the replacement in his most famous moment, but it is due to his fundamental nature as an interchangeable part, a replaceable individual that that is possible. And I don't think it's necessarily the most historically momentous. I think, Xavier, you probably made a very good case for yours on that. I mean, Drew Bledsoe is a good case for that as well. But Drew Bledsoe's is a moment of being replaced that is famous. Whereas this is a replaceable person taking advantage of an opportunity and almost in a way like showing how meaningless the word replaceable ultimately is, which is like something I know even as the person that brought it up. Because like in this moment, only Steve Jenham could be Steve Jenham. Now, I have to think about one thing, and that is whether ACAB includes the Ninja Cop. Yeah, I, I didn't want to think too much about that because if you think about 90s cop from Nebraska, there's probably some really bad connotations there. So I'm going to choose to not think about that because the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm like, I just, I can't vote for a Patriot and it would make Diaz very happy and I like ninjas. So I think I have to vote for the ninja cop without thinking about any of the possible terrible connotations that further research could possibly bring up. I mean, look, I have a cousin that's a police officer. Xavier, of course, you know, we not <laughs> not all cops is what I'm trying to say. Not NACAP. all cops. You say NACAP. Not all cops. All is a very large word and not here's all. what Here's what I'll say. I don't even know that I necessarily am going against ACAB here. I do think we've established being a bastard does not inherently prevent you from being a guy. James brought a Nazi yeah. once. I brought a Nazi with the intention of losing. Let me be like, don't make it sound like I went to the mat, much like our friend Steve Jenham for a fucking Nazi. I watched Deadliest Warrior and I knew that I needed to bring a Viet Cong with me for protection. But I, I look, as Steve Jenham can only be Steve Jenham, I think only Steve Jenham can get my vote this week. I mean, look, I respect that immensely. And I think it's important that we not focus on labels when we discuss guys, right? We don't need to label Steve Jenham as a ninja. We don't need to label him as a cop. We don't need to label him as a UFC champion of a generous path to the title, you might say. We don't need to worry about those labels because there's only one label that this hall is prescribed with, and it is the label that we are bestowing upon Steve Jenham today. That is the label of guy. And I mean, also technically bastard, but guy indeed. And congratulations <laughs> to that guy on his spot. It's just, it was so fun. And like, again, I would encourage any of our listeners that have any more interest in this, 
UFC 3 is on YouTube in its entirety. I think UFC 1 and 2 are also both in, on YouTube in full. But UFC 3, it's on there in full. And it's literally like Brian Kilmeade going. And I'm being told that, okay, so we're going to have this, the championship bat up next. It's going to be uh, Steve Jenham, the replacement. Here's a video about him. And then it's like a 30-second, like, 90s. The music and, like, the shooting, like, it almost feels like it's like a dating profile. It's like Steve Jenham. A VHS that he sent in and, like, had to film at home. It's, it's so much. It's like, yeah, Steve Jenham is, uh, is a police officer, but he won't be uh, arresting anybody in the ring. He'll be trying to take the beat down to the mat. And it's like, it's, it's so bad. It's, what I just said is bad, and it's actually worse than what I just said. We'll try and dig that up. You know what, folks? We'll go ahead and, and share it in the Discord. If you want to see cool stuff like that, you can find all the info about that at bit.ly slash remember that guy, all one word, all lowercase. Feel free to use that to go ahead and share the show. But we do thank you all so much for joining us. We also thank producer Craig and all the coders behind him. We thank our musical director, Don Ham for our lovely theme music. And as I did before I started listening to these, but as I will do once again, we thank you, dear listener, for joining us. I don't know, normally I spin my wheels here for a little bit, but I got nothing else today. We don't need to spin wheels. We, the monster truck. I forget the monster truck. Grave digger. Grave digger? Grave digger, yeah, exactly. It's so crazy to me that you... I mean, I say that, but again, Xavier never saw a wide world of sports. We've all learned horrifying things about one another during the time that we've done this. So we won't make you learn any more horrifying things about us now. We'll just say that I've been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as Slaton once said... I'm like the wine. The older I get, the better I got. Unrelated, how did I not know that Dalvin Cook's name is Dalvin James Cook and his brother is James Dalvin Cook? Oh my God, that's fantastic. Their parents just decided to keep the same names and reverse them for James. That's so spiteful. <laughs> Imagine they get in trouble and, you know, like, your parents will use your, like, your full name. That's going to be so easy to mess up. Dalvin James. Like, what did I do? <laughs>